This is Strange New Trek, a podcast about the life and times of Captain Christopher Pike. And now, your hosts. Space has a lot of comets in it. There are probably billions in our solar system alone. On this week's episode of Strange New Worlds, our crew finds themselves a comet with some interesting features and a scary flight plan. I'm your host, Jeremy Vilmer. Joining me this week is Commander Dog and our chief engineer, Chris Noonien Singh. What's happening, Chris? Hey, hey. Hey. You want to tell everybody why we're coming up a little different day, perhaps, or are we, we going to be on schedule still? I'm going to do my best to get it on schedule. Uh, at least on Thursday. We'll see. Depends yeah. on how long this is. But yeah. we went to record on Sunday, and I may have um, imbibed a little too much, and uh, everything got left on the cutting room floor. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything but the t- the good time we had recording it. Yeah. Like um, yesterday, I was like, how come Jeremy never said anything? He didn't even acknowledge it and just did the episode straight. Mm-hmm. While I was being ridiculous. Yep. Well, you know, because I'm a professional, Chris. Because <laughs> uh, I co-hosted a um, a wrestling show with somebody for years, and that we both had a drinking problem. So I know how to roll through drunken co-hosts, even if it's me. <laughs> oh, yeah, good times. Hey, so anything you want to cover before we get into this week's episode, Children of the Comet, episode two of Strange New Worlds? Yeah, yeah. Real quick. Mm-hmm. Um. We, I think me and you both had this question when we were watching the character trailers. Yes. If um, the lady that plays number one, uh, Rebecca Romaine, uh, did the voice for the computer because it, it sounded like it could have been her. I found confirmation that that is not the case. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit bummed by that because it would be awesome to have Rebecca Romaine, who plays one of the same roles as uh, Majel Barrett, then take up the computer voice like Majel Barrett. But, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, the lady that plays the computer, Alec Cap, she sounds pretty similar to Rebecca Romaine. So, yeah, you know, it's um, it's my head cannon. Yeah. You know, it works for me. <laughs> it works for me. I did have an interest in that question, and I was a little bit bummed to see that it wasn't what we maybe in our little hearts would put together and hope to run with. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, Chris, let's get started here. Yep, um, yep. This week, we're going to start with Uhura's voiceover. Uh, now, on our original recording, you read that. Do you want to try it again? I bet I barely read that. Yeah, you left a few words out here and there. Yeah, she says, Cadet's Log, Stardate 2912.4. The Enterprise is surveying the Persephone system where the crew is studying the behavior of an ancient comet. C slash 2260 Quentin. I, however, am doing rotation and landing party readiness protocols, which doesn't really involve comets, ancient or otherwise. So duties are pretty slow at the moment, except, of course, for a recent invitation to dinner at the captain's cabin, for which I've been encouraged by Lieutenant Ortegas to dust off my dress uniform. That was right right off the bat. Got me laughing. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely sounds like some, um, you know, some, I won't say innocent, but some uh, not really hurtful hazing. Like, you're going to look silly for a second, but nothing really beyond that. And, you know, we used to do stuff like that sometimes. So well, Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, that's that's one thing. It's like, you know, teasing somebody. Hey, go get me the right-handed pipe wrench. Go get Whatever. me the keys to the jet. Yeah, you know, something like that. 
<laughs> that's fine but like hey come here while we like take this board with nails in it and hit you in the butt you know that's that's like no that's that's not cool <laughs> you know? and also i i have to say that dress uniform i don't know how i feel about it like i like it it looks mm-hmm. good but does it look like a dress uniform i no, don't know it looks like it looks like a cadet uniform from next generation to me a little bit yeah i could see that and that's initially what i thought it was yeah because you know for me i realize they look cheap now i like the tos dress uniforms you know the satin jackets with the gold collars and trim down the front and i i like the general idea of those yeah i would have liked to see their dress uniform look more i don't know modern military-esque yeah. at least somewhat instead of like just a variation on the jumpsuit or whatever it was right because it does look like we get a lot of variations of the jumpsuit this season or on this show at least yeah not that i have an issue with that but i don't know the uh dress uniform didn't seem super dressy to me right i don't know if you ever saw it there was going to be a um a fan film called axonar by this uh crook who did a lot of fan what do they call it crowdfunding yeah a lot of crowdfunding to kept moving the thing out but he had dress uniforms that were designed like the old tos dress uniforms but they were cut more like an eisenhower jacket was like the fit of it but they were white and gray instead of the like bright colors of tos and i actually thought that might be kind of cool but you got to be careful that it doesn't come off looking like a major d too you know yeah <laughs> but um as we get you know get past uhura's uh, voiceover she's stepping off the elevator to uh again who i'm gonna say i think is gonna be the funniest person on this ship ortegas who's standing there just wearing like khakis and uh and belly shirt or something and she's like aha so her is <laughs> gonna go change her clothes ortegas is like no come on just you know get this off your bingo card we're on a small ship we got to amuse ourselves and her's like this is not a small ship which I thought was kind of a fun little fun little section. They go over to Pike's door, ring the doorbell. He answers. He's standing there, I don't know, stirring a bowl of something, wearing Hazel's uh, apron. And he goes, ah, they got you with the old uh, dress uniform thing. Very good. And he invites them in. <laughs> First off, again, I have to point out, if this is indeed the captain's quarters, I have stayed in suites in hotels that were more than $500 a night that are smaller than this. Yeah, I, actually, there's a there's a scene later. There's a couple scenes in this that give you more of a sense of what his quarters look like. Yeah. And it's basically, to me, a decent-sized studio apartment with a conference room in it. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I did get the sense that maybe the conference room or the ready room, whatever they're going to call it, is attached to his quarters. That would explain some of the size, but man, he's, I mean, compared to like, you know, you go back and you watch even like Next Generation, their quarters were large compared to TOS, but they were nothing compared to this. Yeah, it seems weird, but I, I like how Pike is, um, and I meant to say this about Ortegas too, Ortegas looks like she's about to go to the gym and, and given Pike's, I don't think you see his whole outfit he's wearing, but at least the top, it looks like they're both about to go to the gym. Yeah, he looks like he's wearing like a, <laughs> like a, a zipper jumpsuit or something. So he settles in to go back to cooking ribs, and Uhura kind of works the room for a couple minutes, uh, and now we get to meet the chief engineer, Hammer, who we saw but not did not deal with at all in the first episode. Yeah, this scene is really the only time you see him in this episode, uh, except for, I mean, maybe he shows up a little later, but this is basically the, the character trailer that we saw the was yeah. scene right here yeah so she comes over and offers to help him slicing vegetables he takes offense to it spock points out that he took offense to it apparently spock and hammer are a comedy duo 
and uh, you know, uh, I thought this was an, a funny little scene because they really kind of rib her pretty good and you know show him or even though he has his eyes don't work, but he's got um, other senses that allow him to you know I guess echolocate or something because Spock throws a carrot up in the air and Hammer snatches it. Yeah, from behind the back. I was gonna say he doesn't even look, but it wouldn't do him any good. I don't yeah. think. <laughs> And, um, you know, I don't know, something about, uh, Uhura points out that the ANR senses are so good, they border on precognition, and he's like, I knew you were going to say that. She goes, could you sense it? And he's like, no, everybody says that. There's, I mean, like, there's some cheap jokes in here, but they work, you know? <laughs> they actually kind of keep me, cra- you know, they kept me smiling during this scene, you know? Yeah. One of the things before we focus on too much of what's going on here, I noticed Pike is kind of the opposite of Picard. Even though I feel like early Pike, like the Cage Pike and Picard are very much alike, Pike now, he like has the crew to his quarters, they hang out. You go back and you watch like the uh, Next Generation, Picard would not hang out with the crew. And there's even an episode I saw, I don't remember which one it is, where he's sitting in his office, his feet on his desk, the door chimes. Before he says come in, he pulls his feet down and straightens his jacket yeah picard's definitely super formal yeah but as far as pike goes i feel like some of his thing is that he had that issue from before the events of the cage he suffered through the events of the cage Mm -hmm. then he had to sit out of the klingon war so he's just been through a lot with his crew not like picard never did but i don't know it seemed to give pike more of a friendlier attitude towards the crew because of all that stuff yeah. instead of going the other way with it well and, and um, anson mount's portrayal of this character is very much a much warmer character yeah i don't i don't know this show would come off if he strictly played like um jeffrey hunter did well you know and we even you even pointed out that if jeffrey hunter's version of star trek got picked up it probably been, would have been one season and done yeah, he was fairly boring. Yeah, even though that's like that's one of my favorite episodes of the show. But yeah, he he's very thin as a character goes, you know. Yeah, and I mean, for sure, had they filmed more episodes with him, they'd have fleshed him out, and he'd have fleshed the character out a little bit more. So it's really hard to say just based off that one pilot episode whether he'd have stayed all broody and um, you know at arm's length with most of the crew. Yeah. Well, but again, when we answered that question, we also said if nothing changed from this, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as we cut to them sitting around the dinner table, Pike is telling a story about chasing a Nausicaan. Now, I don't know if everybody remembers this or not, but Nausicaans are the uh, alien that stabbed Jean-Luc Picard through the back and giving him his artificial heart. So they're this big, ugly, hairy kind of alien. But uh, so Pike is telling the story. He's chasing a Nausicaan who's not wearing pants, and he gets tangled up in the Nausicaan's pants and falls down. Everybody starts laughing, and Spock doesn't get it. (laughs) To which Pike says, sometimes things just go so bad you have to laugh. I'm sure this will never come up again. We don't don't even need to focus on that, you know? Nah, that was just a throwaway line that will never get brought up again. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) During dinner, uh, Uhura gets asked a question about what song she is humming, and we reintroduce Uhura's musical talent, and we discover she speaks 37 languages. Yeah, so she's kind of the Saru of this crew, I think. Yeah. You know, because Saru spoke a bunch of different languages. Well, he spoke way more than that, but, you know, he's also a lot older. But, yeah, I'm glad to see that they kept that small detail of Uhura's character. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think as little as they focused on her in the original series, they did point out that she had musical talents. Yeah. You know, in the movies, I think they also, uh, they featured her um, linguistic skills a little more, and they definitely did with Zoe Saldana's uh, version of Uhura. 
I was kind of thinking, it's been so long since I've seen any of the episodes of the of TOS where she actually sings. I was kind of hoping to pick out a melody that seemed familiar that she was humming. Can you recall if she was humming anything at any point during this episode of the stuff she was singing later? You know what? I, I didn't pick up any. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to, to know that. Yeah, because, you know, the first song she sings in the original series is about Charlie X in the episode Charlie X. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, she's flirting with Spock because he's playing the Vulcan guitar or whatever. <laughs> Let's see here. Oh, okay, so uh, Pike asks her where she sees herself in 10 years. Now, he hangs up on the 10 years a little bit, and I'm guessing it was probably indigestion from gas station nachos. <laughs> Hey, they didn't do the thing this time. No, I don't think they did. I mean, they definitely, they let us know he hadn't forgotten about it, but they didn't like keep showing it, you know? Yeah, which I really like because in the last episode, that was something that we know it's happening. If you want to acknowledge it sometimes, that's fine, but we don't need to see old uh, Nacho face every time he looks into <laughs> something reflective. Exactly. So I'm glad that they did it like that. Yeah. Um, look, if anybody's watching this, they, they know what's going to happen to Chris Pike, I'm pretty sure, you know? <laughs> Let's see here. So, uh, is not sure that she's really cut out to be Starfleet, so she doesn't know if she's going to stick around. Spoiler alert, she does for a very long time. Very long time, yeah. <laughs> and we learned that she was actually headed to the university, um, I was at the University of Nairobi. Yep. But her parents taught there, and her parents and her brother were all killed in a shuttle accident, and now she works as a vigilante at night, destroying shuttles. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm sorry, no. So she decided to join Starfleet and going directly to the university, because <laughs> she thought she wouldn't be able to stop thinking about her uh, family at the university. That would have been a, a super uh, funny detail, though. Yes, it would have. <laughs> She's just blowing up shuttles left and right. <laughs> what? Where's all her shuttlecraft? Pike appreciates her answer and hopes she finds a place to fit in. After dinner, Una and Pike are washing dishes by hand for some reason. Yeah, this scene, wow. Not to mention, they are washing dishes like you would expect a uh, married couple who's been together for a while to do. Like, maybe after the kids have left the house already mm -hmm. and it's just you and the wife. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Um, it's, they, they are definitely establishing some level of intimacy between the two. Yeah, I feel like it's more than just friendship. I yeah. mean, that's definitely a major part of it, but it feels like there's a bit more to that whole story. Yeah, no, it, it feels like there's something. It kind of makes me feel like maybe they had some kind of fling and just both decided they probably shouldn't do that considering she's his first officer or something like that. That's what I thought about when I was watching them react to each other. In that scene. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I'll be interested to see where they go because they're definitely building... Spock has some intimacy with a few characters. And we're getting, <laughs> at, least, at the very minimum, we're getting some platonic intimacy between number one and Pike. At a minimum, that's what's there, you know? Yeah, for sure. But I don't know. I just felt like there was some subtext there. Yeah. No, it, it did. It did. And you know what? The more the more I think about when you point out that Captain Battelle kind of looked like number one when she was laying in bed, you know, with her <laughs> back exposed, I wonder if that was intentional. I can't have been the only one to think that at, in that moment. No. <laughs> so I, I have to think that that, that was probably intentional because they could have put a blonde woman there real easily, you know? Yep. So Una points out that, you know, he, Chris has asked this question about the 10-year plan a lot, and this is the first time she's seen him, like, hang on it. And he explains that he has memorized the name of every cadet he saves in that vision that he had on Boreth. 
Uno kind of says, like, you know, the future's the future, but I refuse to believe this is just, like, written in stone and there's nothing we can do about it. Which, interesting enough, um, (laughs) that's kind of the theme of this episode altogether. Yeah. So that was a a cool little, I don't know, foreshadowing for his overall arc but also for this particular episode yeah it doesn't seem like it really reflects on much until you get right to the end of the episode yep just then spock summons in the bridge because he's noticed an issue with the comet the comet's gonna hit a populated world with the pre-warp civilization and wipe out all life and uh, they kind of bandy about a plan they're gonna use some uh, torpedo engines to divert the comet now they're gonna use ion engines which get delivered to the comet with photon torpedoes oh okay yeah yeah. I mean, I, I thought that's what drove... Okay, never mind. I thought that's what drove <laughs> torpedoes, but okay, okay. I don't know. They they talk about it like it's two separate things. So yeah. that's only that's only the reason I said it like that. No, no, that's, that's fair. That's fair. You know, I, I was trying to gloss over a whole lot of details. Maybe I missed something. <laughs> Pike points out they have to save a whole planet before breakfast. And as an aside, he says to number one that he loves his job. But does he, though? I think in the moments where he's helping people... Or he feels like he's helping people. He loves it. But obviously, not so much the other parts of the job. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like unshaven Pike and shaven Pike are almost two different people, you know? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I really feel that has to do with the fact that he's helping somebody. Yeah. No, is I, why I he's all peachy. That. Yeah. He can, um, you know, he can do, he can try to do that. So they launch the, the torpedoes that carry the ion engines, apparently, but they strike a force field around the comet. Yeah, even um, even I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't expect that, actually. <laughs> and then he's kind of like, hey, what kind of comet has force fields? This is where they're going to take an act break, but this is also where I take in a moment and we do an aside because I have seen a lot of chatter online about how this is them violating the Prime Directive. I don't think so. I disagree. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's violating the prime directive. These aliens will never know that a higher technology life form saved them. They will never know they were in danger. This is just them going, "Hey, here's a problem we can easily solve, and save billions of lives." Because I can't believe that the prime directive says in every situation you have to let an intelligent species go extinct. I mean, to be fair, at least our modern military can be fairly stubbornly rigid in their rules with not a lot of uh, wiggle room. Right. So I can believe it might say that, but I can also believe that more often than not, people probably act just like Pike did, where, you know, there's zero chance that they're going to even know you're there. So why sit here and watch this planet get basically blown up without giving these people a chance to develop more? Yeah, I just I have a hard time believing that genocide is just acceptable in every situation. Well, I mean, a comet striking a planet's not genocide. Well, it is if everybody on it dies. No, because genocide is perpetrated by another person, not a natural occurrence. I thought genocide was something that wiped out an entire uh, species. I think there's a more population. Uh, no, it's um the term was coined in 1944. Was it really? By a guy I can't I'm not going to even pronounce try to pronounce his name because I'll mess it up and I don't want to seem like a jerk. Oh, you're right. It's a deliberate killing of a large number of people. Yep. I always thought it was just like allowing, you know, just just a large group of people like, you know, like an entire population being wiped out. So when I said the thing about the prime directive, I'm not I'm not um advocating that it says that, but just in case it actually does, I could see the Federation being fairly rigid in the in how they wrote it and people 
disobeying it. Like I said, especially when um, there's zero chance for both the Federation or the people on the planet to know that they were saved from a starship. Yeah, you know, what I've always gotten from, now I, I realize they've used it for different story elements, but you have to have conflict to have a story. But what I always took from a Prime Directive is basically to keep you from showing up on a planet and saying, behold, I am your, you know, your Lord God. And here's here's a bunch of, um, you know, rifles and stuff. Now, follow me to glory. Yeah, plus um, I feel like if it was an actual violation of the Prime Directive, Pike would have jumped all over talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was zero mention of it, I don't think. I don't remember them, like, even bringing it up. No, they don't. And I think that's what a lot of people were pointing out is, like, it never came up. But especially early on in, in Starfleet, I just have trouble believing that that's what people are doing with the Prime Directive. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that the Prime Directive covers what they're about to do or yeah. about to try to do or fail to do right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, we come back from the act break and uh, from the conference, uh, in the conference room, Una gives a rundown on a comet. No life signs. But there is an underground structure which indicates intelligent life. It looks like a comet, acts like a starship, but has a structure like a planet. Leanne thinks it could be a lost craft. Spock thinks that they could beam down to the control room or what he, you know, uh, theorizes is probably a control room. And Fake Kirk says he has never heard of a species evolving on a comet. Uh, <laughs> Pike remarks about Fake Kirk's mustache. And uh, Fake Kirk says, yeah, maybe you should grow one. Pike orders Land, Spock, Uhura, and Fake Kirk to beam down to the comet. Yeah, here's a another aside here. He's a Xeno anthropologist. Yes. Just like Burnham was actually. Oh, was that her was that was her job, wasn't it? Yep. On her original ship, the Shinjo. Um I forgot about that. Xeno anthropologist. Now see, once we ever find or if we ever find uh signs of alien life, xenobiology and xenoanthropology would be awesome fields of work to be in. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, because I already have an interest in, in archaeology, but imagine xenoarchaeology. Oh yeah, yeah. It kinda sucks though that I feel like you and I won't won't be alive yeah, to see any of that come to fruition. Yeah, I don't think we will. <laughs> uh, just let me be alive for first contact, for better or worse. That's all I care well, you about. Know what? I'm even cool with like, hey, find find a single cell organism on Mars. I just want to know that there's life out there. You know, because if we find even just a single cell organism on like Mars or Europa, that means every there's life everywhere, and that's what I'm well to find out. If we found it on Mars, we'd have no way of knowing if we brought it there. Okay, Europa. We'll say Europa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that would necessarily satisfy my curiosity on it. Maybe Europa, the Europa thing, but I don't know. I just want us to intercept some kind of alien signal yeah. that we can verify is not a pulsar or something naturally occurring and didn't come from us. Yeah. You know, my other problem is, Chris, because I get paranoid sometimes. I feel like what we're going to do when we finally find some signal, right, we're going to then we're going to get a bunch of them because we're actually in a simulation and then they're going to be added to the simulation and then <laughs> there'll be like aliens everywhere after that. I mean, or, um, you know, it could just be like, what what um other civilizations are going to be barraged with once our early radio waves kind of do the radio stuff to the tv signals so once they start getting them from us they're going to keep getting it from us for you know however long we exist well as long as <laughs> you know as long as we keep you know beaming uh signals out into space you know on radio waves yeah yeah of course we get out there and nobody else is out there yet but we start populating the universe as far as we can go there's going to be eventual speciation and we're going to have different populations of humans turn into different species of humans yeah that so. that's something i 
I feel like is not touched on much in Star Trek. Although, even when you go from the original series to even um, where Burnham and Co. are at right now, I don't think that's enough time for them to fully develop into uh, a different species. Um, they no, will... You would probably still be able to breed, you know. Uh, yeah. But see, like you have people, people living on Titan or in... Um, low gravity simulated environments like a, a, a what do they call that an O'Neill cylinder or something right I think within a few generations you would see people who were taller and thinner lighter boned just because of the environment they're in not even because of changes in the gene pool yet yeah I could see that yeah but as those things change the gene pools would change but yeah for a while everybody would still be able to breed you know, like, if you chain all the humankind and even through periods of evolution, if you go from one generation back to the previous generation, even though they're quote-unquote different species at that point, they'd still be able to breed point to point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think, like, we never look at the fact that maybe it, maybe there's nobody else out there because we're first, and we're going to mm. populate the universe with, like, all sorts of human descendants. All right, so Pike's going to order them all down to the planet. They go and they put on their spacesuits, which do look quite a bit like the old TOS spacesuit. Yeah, I really like the the way these suits look. I mean, they're kind of following a similar design from the spacesuits in Discovery, but I like these more. Yeah, these because of the bright panel in the center of the chest and the silver suit. They just have a, a TOS flare, but they look like a realistic suit now. Yeah, and everybody still has their, you know, division colors on on their on their suits. So I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, I don't think they had that in uh, the spacesuits on Discovery. And Discovery, uh, no, I think they were all just like bronze on that one, right? I already don't recall what those spacesuits looked like. Yeah. So as they're getting their spacesuits on, Chapel explains that the radiation down there is high enough uh, to cook them, basically, and she's going to give them a shot that'll buy them a few hours down there. Uhura says the shot hurts. Fake Kirk winces a little bit, Leanne does not react at all, and then Chapel comes to Spock, asking if he's ready, and Spock says to her that he's ready for any kind of pain she can uh, inflict, leading to Chapel saying that he, that he was just toying with her. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the few uh, notes that I had in my notebook from my first really drunken watch-through of this episode, and uh, even though when we started recording, I couldn't even recall why I had written it by that point. Oh. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, on the uh, comet surface, Leanne and Spock make their way forward. Uhura's hanging back, and Fake Kirk asks her if she's okay. Uh, they all enter the control room, and there's a giant egg in the center of the room, and Spock notes the atmosphere is breathable. Uhura's kind of feeling overwhelmed. Kirk gives her, Fake Kirk gives her a little bit of a pep talk. That's what, just what we're going to call him from now on. Ah, um, I'm, I'm okay with it. Uhura approaches the uh, egg and notices a repeating pattern on it. Fake Kirk forgets that his mustache isn't alien-proof, touches the egg and get zapped dude Mm -hmm. i was so hoping (laughs) i was so hoping he was gonna die here i'm not even gonna lie i was like please don't resuscitate him please just let him die right here he was on the show cool now it's time for him to go yeah you know his inclusion as a fake out (laughs) worked but i don't know how i feel about him as a like a weekly character it's already distracting yep which is why when this happened i was like okay they're about to take him out cool and then, yeah. then they didn't. Um, also, he <laughs> reminds me of Sam Rockwell's character on Galaxy Quest. Like, I, he, I know he doesn't act like him in any way, but just between the mustache and him being there, it's just it's, I'm picturing Sam Rockwell's character. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, they try to get him to beam out, but just then there's too much interference, and Kyle can't get a lock on him, and then the shields on the comet come back up. 
Now, fortunately, Spock uses the tri. Unfortunately for Chris, but fortunately for him, Spock <laughs> uses the tricorder to get Kirk's, uh, Kirk's heart going again. But they're completely cut off from the ship now. Yeah, I still like how they have managed to incorporate a lot of the TOS visuals with an updated look. Because even on the ship's consoles on the Enterprise, I was seeing those same kind of push buttons that you saw on the uh, bridge in TOS. And yeah, so the jelly looking buttons. at the tricorder, yeah, looking at the tricorder here again, um, I know we saw it last episode, I think, uh, once or twice, but um, here again, I just would like to say I appreciate the um, attention to detail in that regard. Yeah, you know, and if you search online, there's actually a couple of photo spreads of the communicator, the tricorder, and the phaser, and they look really nice, and they also look very TOS. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they're made with updated materials and stuff like that, so you can tell one was made at a different time. But... Oh, absolutely. All right, let's see here. So, uh, Lan sedates Kirk, but he's not going to survive without proper medical attention. Um, you know, in the future, we've got some bad news for him. Uhura asked what kind of comet would want to keep them uh, keep them there. Oh yeah, that's why they can't kill him right here. Yep, yeah. Jesus. The, uh, the ravioli monsters have to get him. No, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Dang. Uh, Spock points out that Uhura may be the only person who can answer the question. Uh, they're really going to lean into her linguistics and communication skills going forward. We can see the natives on the planet below are concerned about the uh, comet that they can see in the sky. Back on the Enterprise, Pike asks the bridge crew for ideas. Ortega suggests using the phaser harmonics to shatter the shield. Pike gives her the go-ahead. Spock asks Uhura how she's doing, and she basically says she's in over her head. Then she asks him if that was too honest. Spock notes that Vulcans are often too honest. And then Uhura kind of teases him about uh, Nurse Chapel being his girlfriend and <laughs> flirting with him. Um points out she's trying to use humor to bring down the tension a little bit and Spock says he prefers using logic and for some reason Leanne throughout this whole episode is stink eyeing Uhura like heavily stink eyeing her like every chance she gets I think it's a similar reason that Spock chides her about using humor to defuse the situation because Leanne is pretty you know stern at least in these two episodes back on the Enterprise Inner reports that the phasers were locked and ready Pike gives the command to fire, but as soon as they get ready, the ship is shaken by weapons impact, and a large vessel positions itself between the Enterprise and the Comet. <laughs> Pike orders alien frequencies, identifying himself in the Enterprise and asking why they've been fired upon. The other identifies his people as the Shepherds. Okay, now this was kind of funny because Pike looks back at the acting communications officer like, "What?" And she's like, "It's what the computer says." <laughs> 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 so that's not what I'm calling them. The captain of the Shepherds uh, explains that he is escorting Manit, which he says is far more than a comet, but an ancient arbor of life. He then threatens to destroy the Enterprise if they attempt to tamper with it again. Pike turns to Una and orders her to scan the ship, finding out what its weaknesses and strengths are. You know, what are they dealing with? Before turning back to the Shepherd captain, explaining that their intentions were not hostile. This comet's about to, uh, you know, impact an inhabited planet. We're just trying to save their lives by, by diverting it, which the Shepherd calls that absurd and kind of compares it to changing the height of an ocean wave and some other things. Basically, the, the captain of the Shepherd ship is basically saying that, hey, what's what's going to happen is going to happen, and we don't interfere with the comet. Yeah, so he's at least uh, practicing the imaginary portion of the Prime Directive that would prevent them from doing anything. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Let's see here. So they have a conversation about being a reasonable man, and, and the shepherd tries to go over, you know, basically predestination in a way, I guess. Basically taking on faith that this is going to work out is what the uh, shepherd captain has given him. <laughs> Pike puts the uh, shepherd on hold so Una can brief him on the ship's abilities. They're outgunned, outclassed, and Ortega says that she wouldn't want to piss them off. Pike <laughs> just kind of hopes that the, they haven't noticed the away team down on the comet, and he opens up the channels again, and as Pike begins talking, the shepherd points out that he knows about the landing team. <laughs> And uh, if they attempt to rescue, it will be a declaration of war. So communications are cut. Pike tells the crew to get through to the landing party, even if they have to break the laws of physics. Yeah, I feel like Pike um, asked a lot of his crew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like beaming um, a liquid into somebody's eye, trying to break the laws of physics. Yeah, he's, um, he, he expects them to perform, you know. <laughs> yeah, which, well, it's, it doesn't happen here, but, you know, he has a similar... Um, Re, uh, interaction with Ortegas about, you know, you say you're a, a badass pilot, let's see it. Which, I feel like he did the same thing last episode, too. Um, yeah, I can't remember if he actually did it last episode. Or maybe he did it when, um, on Discovery. Well, he kind of does it to Detmer on Discovery, where... <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, he's giving everybody commands, and he just looks at her and goes, fly good? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I know you can do it, so just do it, you know? <laughs> Back down on what we now know to be a temple on the comet, Leanne is being a mean girl again and asking her if she's going to get them uh, out or get them killed. Spock tries to give her a pep talk. It does not go real well. <laughs> she points this out. It says that, you know, maybe if she was actually supposed to be Starfleet or actually Starfleet, this would be one thing. And then Spock kind of points out that given that it's her first away mission and the first time in her life has been in danger, or asked her if it was, and she confirms it, Spock notes that, um, you know, she's confronting her own morality or mortality and she's getting going to get a different perspective on things, you know, and is she going to be able to rise to the occasion and see it through or not? Which is, a you know, he does it better, but he gives her a better uh, pep talk and kind of boys her spirit a little bit. <laughs> to which you, I'm sorry, guys, I'm still getting over COVID here. She begins humming, and the more she hums, the more they notice that it's having an effect on the chamber, and that the chamber is responding to music. <laughs> and Commander Dog has actually gone over, gotten into a moving box, and started removing things. So it's going to be a little noisy in here for a few minutes, I have a feeling. Well, she's not barking. <laughs> nope, no, she's not barking. <laughs> Back on the Enterprise, they notice a signal coming from the comet. The computer identifies it as the tune Uhura was humming at dinner. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. This device does not support that feature. Huh. I forgot I changed that one to react to the word computer. Oh, I'm keeping that in. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see here. In the temple, Uhura is harmonizing with the temple. They all discuss the universal and mathematical nature of music. Uhura gets Spock to harmonize with her, and the egg opens. Uhura then matches the sounds of the temple, and the room begins to shake. Back on the Enterprise, Una detects that the comet's shields are dropping, and Pike orders the team beam back. Then orders a red alert, because he knows the shepherds are going to be pissed. Nurse Chapel rushes into the transporter room to grab fake, uh, fake Kirk and rush him out of there. The shepherds hail them, and Pike says they should find common ground. <laughs> I'd love to see. Hey, let's talk about it. Find some common ground. You're all blasphemers. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I actually love that scene. 
The Shepard launches torpedoes. Pike orders the crew to brace for impact. Land suggests uh, firing back. Pike, you know, kind of holds off on that. Pike has a theory the Comet was trying to communicate, but Uhura thinks it would take too long to try to understand it. Pike okays firing the weapons at the propulsion system of the space bunks, and this forces the Shepherds to drop back and regroup. The crew starts spitballing ideas, and then Spock asks, what if the Comet moves itself? Pike gets Ortegas to do some fancy flying to escape the uh, torpedoes from the fast-approaching Shepherds. The Shepherds stop firing as the Enterprise has moved near enough to the Comet to put it in the firing range. The Shepherds try hailing them, and Pike holds it off. Pike cuts all power to the ship besides, like, life support, and uh, communicator calls over to the Shepherds and basically says, hey, you know, we're done here. We're, you know, we're dead in the water. What if um, I surrender myself? And the aliens basically say, well, what if we don't accept? And that's when Pike pulls a little Kirk move here. He does what Kirk did in the Corbomite maneuver. He says, hey, we've got trilithium resin. If you hit us and destroy us, we'll blow up everything around here. We'll blow up the comet and we'll blow up the uh, your ship all because of this resin sitting on our ship. You know, there's no way to shoot us without having that happen, <laughs> which is, you know, almost identical to how Kirk deals with that episode of the Corbomite maneuver. Yeah, uh, well, that that whole scene seemed to be familiar, where Kirk feigns an issue with the ship to buy a few minutes. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I guess I don't like about this is that it makes it seem like a Corbomite maneuver wasn't Kirk's idea, like original idea, but I guess nothing really would be in that situation, you know? Anything you tried to do has probably been some version of it's been done before. Luna warns that Pike's taking a big gamble, and a moment later, the Shepherds uh, activate a tractor beam and hook up the Enterprise. And this is where Pike uh, tells Spock that he's up, and Spock above the shuttlecraft Galileo, which has been Boba Fetting the underside of the larger chunk of debris near the comet. <laughs> he begins using the shuttle shields to radiate heat, which causes the comet to begin to fracture. Spock maintains position, activating heat shields. He has to do some fancy flying to avoid pieces of the comet coming in. Back on the Enterprise, Una uh, looks around at her console, showing that the sublimation is working and the comet's course is being diverted. And Pike notes for the record that they did not actually touch it, keeping his word with the shepherds. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I'm not touching you. I'm not yeah. touching you. Exactly. You can't get mad. <laughs> the most legalistic <laughs> definition you can do, you know. I said I wouldn't poke you with this finger. <laughs> Okay. I guess they at one point they kind of think they may have lost uh, Spock, but they get some laughing over the uh, the comms and, you know, oh, hey, what's going on, Spock? Oh, sometimes things go so bad, you just have to laugh. Right, Chris? Yeah, it caught, it caught me off guard when Spock laughed right here. <laughs> Um, it is the only piece of Ethan Peck's acting that I have not cared for so far, was that laugh. <laughs> I was just like, meh, meh, I mean, okay, I get it. I see what you did there. You got a little callback, but meh. No, I mean, I think it was purposely done like that because that's not a thing Spock often does. No, it's true. It's true. So well, I, I think it was a forced laugh. I was going to say, it seems like when uh, Data tries to laugh on Next Generation. <laughs> oh, it's not that bad. No, no, but it, it, it's, in that, it's in that ballpark. <laughs> so a piece of the comet breaks off, and it, it heads towards uh, Persephone 3 and hits the atmosphere, which is going to add a lot of vapor to the atmosphere, which is going to take the arid planet and make it a... Well, a planet with more water in the atmosphere, which is hopefully going to allow more growth and life and things to happen. Yeah, but here's the thing about that. Wouldn't the life on that planet already be adapted to lower lower water content through evolution? 
Yeah. Well, we get the idea that there's no water on that planet, I feel like. Um, maybe they don't actually say that, but that was the impression I got. Or at least, yeah, like you said. Very, very, very little at the least, yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of sitting here wondering, like, man, if it's raining and these people didn't evolve to deal with that, I feel like they wouldn't be standing outside raising their arms to the sky and smiling and stuff. They'd probably freak the hell out. Oh, yeah. Some of them would probably drown. (laughs) (laughs) Like a teaspoonful of water is enough to drown these people because they literally have, like, no water on this planet. (laughs) Um, You know, the way I just, I had to do it in my head where I just said, okay, you know what? This this planet used to have a lot of water, and then there was climate change, and there hasn't been as much lately, and now this comet's going to put it back to where it was. There we go. I fixed it. I fixed it for you, Star Trek. Um, the shepherds hail them again and basically, you know, do the glory and mercy that is my neat. Pike, you know, agrees, hey, we saw a miracle here today. The people that are natives to Persephone 3 are just like super stoked for some reason to see this stuff coming from the sky that they may have never seen before. And we kind of see the comet just continue across the sky. You know, that's kind of the ending shot there. And then we go to the captain's log supplemental. I'm left to wonder who made the comet. How many more like it are out there? Was it coincidence that fostered the chance for more life on Persephone 3 or something more? Faith is a continuing theme throughout Pike's story, Discovery, and this so far. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. In the conference room, her explains that they had already figured out how to confirm the musical notes and numbers, but she had turned the numbers into coordinates. <clears throat> Pike asked the coordinates painted a picture, and Uhura confirms that it did, but not just any picture. It showed star charts of its movements through the Persephone system, including a course that took it past Persephone 3, meaning it did not intend to impact the planet. And if Spock had not done what he had done, the comet wouldn't have gone on the course that it was already plotting to take. So there was some kind of weird predestination thing here with this comet as well. Yeah, so (laughs) that takes me back to that conversation that Pike and number one have in his quarters after everybody has left and where she was basically advocating, well, you know, this is not set in stone. You can change it. But then the the lesson at the end of this episode was, no. You really can't. You you can't. Yeah. There's really no way out. <laughs> they talk about fate a little bit. And uh, let's see here. Spock walks along with Uhura in the corridor, recalling what he had said about many dreaming of being in Starfleet and representing its values. Uhura begins, yeah, begins to say she knew it shouldn't have been her down there, but Spock cuts her off and says the odds of their survival were quite low, that no pep talk could have increased them. He understands that she did not come to Starfleet the way many did and didn't, yeah, and indeed wasn't sure she wanted to stay. However, after actions on the comet, he expresses his certainty that she should choose to, st- or should she choose to stay, it Starfleet would be fat- fortunate to have her. So, you know, we, we kind of get a sense of her being a more valued member of the crew and a more capable person than we probably saw in TOS. As we cut back to Pike in his quarters, he's watching the comet and, uh, you know, kind of thinking about how a little piece of ice and dust could roam through the galaxy and bring life. Una says that none of them could have predicted how, and Pike agrees. Una goes on to say that receiving a message from the future didn't mean they had to understand it. Pike recognizes they were not talking about the comet anymore. Una urges him to not throw his life away. I wonder what she meant by that. I don't know. Maybe maybe he's just going to sit around and live like a ghost for the next nine years until his time to go, until his, his accident. Yeah, but these last two episodes prove that that's not what he's doing. Well, you know, you, you know, yeah. Well, well, she knows him better than we do, Chris. 
<laughs> That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit later, Pike's sitting in his quarters, and he pulls up the information on Federation citizens, and he names all of the cadets that he saves in the future. And, of course, it shows them, but they're all a bunch of little kids still. Yeah, I mean, so we're only um, 10 years away from that event. Yeah. I wonder if this show will ever deal with that directly. I tend to think probably not, but... I don't know. I wouldn't think so, but you know what? We honestly, we have no idea what's going to go on with Star Trek. Hell, they're coming up with like nine new series ideas every hour. Plus, um, you know, we know Captain Kirk's coming yeah. next season. So. You know, and I would, I would totally be okay with them doing something with Kirk, even if it was just like a mini series where they did a few of the episodes, but way less sexist. (laughs) (laughs) Just a couple things to say like, Hey guys, you know, all the stuff we know that happened, happened. It just, it's less sexist than we remember it. You know, (laughs) I I would be cool with all that. All right. So Chris, do we got any nits to pick this week? You know what? I don't. Yeah. I don't think I do either. I think I was perfectly happy with just about everything that happened in here. Yeah. Even though we were saving a, a planet from certain destruction, um, I'm glad to have not seen a uh, universe peril. Yes. <laughs> a universe wide peril. No, and you know what? I've been very happy. I mean, I, I get that it's only two episodes, but so far the stakes have been, I mean, well, large, like planets, but they haven't been galactic level scale every, you know, every hour. Mm-hmm. And I, because I kind of feel like that's a trap that Discovery set for itself and it can't get out of. Yeah, I mean, I know I, I kind of picked apart at a couple things. I guess, like, the Kirk thing, it's distracting. I mean, I don't hate it. I'm not like you over here, like, burning an effigy of them or something. But... <laughs> so I guess we're good there. So, hey, Chris, where are we headed next week? Oh, wow. So fake Kirk is enslaved in a dark warehouse. His brother is conscripted by a feral messiah. With the help of a timid android, he must prevent war in order to avert disaster and save his reality. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. Sucks that it's going to be fake Kirk heavy next week, but that's where we are. Look, it's it's, it's bound to happen, right? Everybody's getting getting an episode, it looks like. All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or theories you want to run by us, hit up our website at strangenewtrekshow.com or follow the links in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app of choice. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. It's one small step for you, but a giant leap for the show. And a special thanks to Miguel Esparza for writing the theme song for Strange New Trek and also to William Harding for running our YouTube page. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to set your phasers to stun and join us next time when we're on to the next planet of the week.